and welcome to Cynical Talk. This is a weekly roundup between your co-hosts, myself, Thomas Brancato, and myself, George Shaft, where we will be exploring a variety of topics loosely related to MI Cynic and just seeing what happens. It's going to be a more laid back approach to the MI Cynic standard episodes. And it is a chance for me and George to sound off a little bit more on our own hot takes, on our own opinions and the beauty of conversation. Welcome to the MI Cynic podcast, Cynical Talk. My name is George Shaft and joining me is, of course, our beloved dear leader and founder, Thomas Brancato. Hello. The cold meeting has started already. It has indeed. And what are we going to be speaking about today? Well, today I was thinking that the subject should really be the, frankly, the Lovecraftian cloud that has been hovering over everyone's shoulders since last February. And that has been the war in Ukraine. It's going to dovetail nicely with various other podcasts that we are doing. Make sure to check them out. We have got some very nice experts talking about about various aspects of the war. But this is cynical talk. This is going to be more off the cuff, more speaking from the heart, what we think, what we know about this conflict. And there's certainly a lot to talk about. Already, the war in Ukraine, in five months, it has already killed more people than 10 years of war in Yemen. It has cost the world in uh, money billions, hundreds of billions, destabilized global food prices, destabilized global oil and natural gas prices, especially for Europe, and all of that a refugee crisis, the likes of which, well, to be honest, we've actually seen them in the past five years, but that wouldn't be a normal thing in normal circumstances. No, it's been an, an, an exceptional year, really, because not only are we dealing with the recovery of the of the pandemic, which um, has cost millions of, of lives, but also um, untold economic damage, but now we're also dealing with um, the fallout the, of the Ukraine war, which we're already seeing, as you said, in, in not only in food prices, but energy prices. And of course, the humanitarian crisis, the refugee crisis, the moral crisis, and perhaps most dangerous of all, the escalation crisis between what is, without a doubt, really a confrontation at this stage between Russia and the West. I don't think there's any serious or unserious military analyst, at least in Russia, who would not define this as a conflict between them and us. And um, you know, it's been a long time since we've had a confrontation this close with a, a major uh, nuclear power. I don't think there's been a direct, as direct a confrontation ever. Uh, we were discussing the you know, the subject of. Russia and this war with Joseph Habina, uh, you know, the strategies and you know, the, the causes behind the war. Well, that, that's going to be a longer episode that will be available um, sometime next week. And it's really interesting because Joseph spent some time living in Russia. He graduated from Moscow State University and then he, he worked 
in foreign policy sort of think tanks and such in Moscow. And so he understands the Russian mindset quite well. And is not only that, but he is a foreign policy analyst, a Slovak in origin. So he has sort of a unique direct experience. And I think, that, you know, the, one of the reasons that I wanted him to speak about the subject is because I think fundamentally one of the, the bigger issues at play is this is this misperception, as Yosef would call it, between the Russian mindset and the Western mindset. And that's quite dangerous when things can escalate very quickly. You don't want any space for miscommunication. That was the Cuban Missile Crisis in large part wasn't a problem of miscommunication. Um, nowadays, communications are more instant than ever, and that presents a new kind of challenge. But I, I would classify today's biggest um, threat, not just miscommunication, but rather misperception. And that is when, when two, let's say, for lack of a better word, ideology, but it's really more about mindsets, are not understanding each other. And Yosef made this great point that, you know, to understand fully the Russian mindset, you have to understand the, the beginning of Russian statehood, which was born out of this, this incredible need for national sovereignty, which for them was defined as defense against the, the roaming cavalry hordes of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Mongols, the, the German Uhlans and such, all around the steppes of Russia, because that's what they are, the steppes. There were nomadic tribes and horsemen before today's national borders. And so Russia, back when it was a, a duchy, a principality, really was born from this, this need to, to wall up and defend against these, these foreign invaders and aggressors. And I think Yosef was trying to explain that, you know, to a large extent, this, this ideology, this mentality of national sovereignty above everything else has sort of maintained, has kept on despite now living in the 21st century and things have changed and Poland is not going to invade you. But the mindset is still very much there. And so that's why to a large degree, we find that the, there's a lot of sympathy and support, even among the educated international diplomatic classes or the Russian oligarchs who are used to doing business with the West and who have a lot to lose as a result of this war. Even amongst the, those groups of people, we actually find quite wide support for what Russia has done. And, you know, one of my questions, which viewers will have to tune in for the full answer, because I, I would only butcher it here, but was, you know, if we could turn back the time to early February and ask Mr. Putin, bearing in mind everything that has happened, would you do this again? And Yusuf's answer was, was very interesting, but to summarize, it was basically, you know, he'd change around some of the dates of when the invasion was launched, but he would not, and Russia to a large extent, would not change their mind on this. Ukraine must be stamped out because they are a challenge to this holy concept of Russian national sovereignty. And stamping out, they're certainly trying with We've been see, we've heard over the past couple of months a lot about the battles that have been happening in Ukraine. Lysychansk, Severodonetsk, Kherson, Mariupol. And evidently, there seems to be an element of just sheer bloody-mindedness, stamp them out at all costs. The latest story from time of recording 
that's garnered world attention has been a deal that was signed between Ukraine and Russia to resume grain exports. Less than 24 hours later, the Russian military launched rockets at Odessa, which is Ukraine's major port, presumably to destroy some of those grain shipments that were destined for nations abroad. Don't make deals with people that you intend to stamp out, and it seems to show. Well, I always thought this this deal was a rather peculiar thing, George, because it's a bit strange in the middle of a war which by all accounts has now descended into vilification and and hatred, um, which often happens when, you know, you have a large power like Russia thinking this might be over in two weeks and Ukraine is offering this resistance, heroic resistance, or at the very least, unexpected resistance, but also by all accounts being a proxy war because they're being funded uh, almost completely by the West, which is, you know, the ultimate enemy here. So from the Russian mindset, the Ukrainians might, might be seen as orthodox brothers who have been lost to the devils of the West or whatever it is. Anyway, it becomes ideological and hatred starts to pour in. And despite the the casualties, the blood between, um, you know, brothers, what used to be brothers, uh, that can get quite ferocious. But despite that, we have this, this deal that's essentially, okay, you know, you can open up Odessa, I believe, that the, the sea city of Odessa, the main port left, for the Ukrainian side, you can do your grain shipments. I think what Russia's getting out of this is that now what's going to happen is that the Russian the sanctions from the West to Russian food would also be lifted as a source of condition of the agreement, which is where I suppose it starts to make more sense because it's sort of like, well, Russia wins something out of this too. But it's just sort of strange that in the middle of a war, you can have this diplomatic civility between both sides are saying, we're not going to target each other's ships, we're just going to target each other's people. It's not as strange as you might think. It's actually the norm throughout history that even in the middle of a war, the two sides are still talking to each other and they work out little deals here and there. I think, for example, with Syria during their civil war, There were constant deals made between the government forces under Assad and the rebel forces for things like uh, evacuations. It happened multiple times where the government forces would besiege a city and instead of trying to take it by storm and lose thousands of soldiers in the process, they'd make a deal with the rebels to go, you can leave in peace as long as you go straight to Idlib province. In exchange, we get this city back. And it happened over and over again. We saw it in Homs, we saw it in Aleppo, we saw it in Dara. And by and large, these agreements were held to, even though it entailed convoys of enemy soldiers driving in the middle of the territory. It's it's a bit of a misconception that, you know, in the middle of a war, the two sides don't talk to each other. In fact, the opposite is true. The two sides always have back channels. They always, I I hesitate to call it a referee, but in a sense, it is a bit like a referee. You always have some kind of, all right, well, we're in the middle of a war, but let's not be too bad at this. What is more unusual is breaking them so flagrantly and so quickly, because, you know, think of it from the example of of the Assad 
regime with, when it was fighting various rebel groups. It would have been extremely tempting for Assad's soldiers to shoot at rebel convoys as they're leaving cities that they've agreed to surrender. But you have to think in the long term, what happens then when those soldiers then go to the next rebel city and besiege that one? The commanders in those cities are going to know that the last city that took such a deal got blown up and they all died. So, of course, they're not going to take a deal, which would end up resulting in a months-long grinding siege that would have been a huge loss of lives and material and ammunition that could have just been saved. And I think it, it's a balancing act. Um, it's a really interesting subject, the subject of laws and war. In, in Roman, there's a famous sort of proverb or saying that's it's inter anima enem silent leges. I probably butchered that. But anyway, the point of it being in times of war, laws are non-existent or laws go silent. But it's not entirely true. You know, you've pointed an example. The other one I would say is, is during World War II, the, the Geneva Conventions were tried to largely upheld by the Wehrmacht, by the, the, the German army. Of course, not in the concentration camps. But I think to his dying day, Adolf Hitler refused to use chemical agents for chemical warfare against the, the opposing army. And, 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 but I would say, you know, and I don't know if that was necessarily a moral stance. I mean, he was a soldier during World War I, so he must have seen the effects, of course, of, of, of chemicals being used in war and mustard gas and the like. Um, I think really it's it's more along with what you've just said, you know, this fear of retaliation, or if I start to lose a bit of during the war, you know, will this be done to me? And, uh, you know, Assad certainly might be thinking along that way. So it's almost as if in even during times of war, there's always a little wiggle room for that diplomacy of, um, you know, we're going to choose to negotiate this deal or that law be upheld or this convention. Uh, and it might in my opinion, and being a more realist kind of a thinker, it would come down simply to, um, you know, we have, it's a game theory kind of thinking of, uh, if I if I uphold this, then it guarantees my enemy upholds that, which ultimately is better than if I don't uphold this, my enemy might not uphold that. Because once, once you're at war with somebody, then, you know, you've already reached that lowest common denominator of sort of total annihilation or destruction or whatever the war agenda is. So it's strange, really, that Russia would allow Ukraine to be profiting from grain shipments, if not for the fact that because of that, they can also stand to benefit perhaps more from their own grain shipments. But there's that calculation, that balance of power that where it gets a bit tricky because you think, would Russia have accepted this deal which was made in Turkey? if they didn't stand more to gain than Ukraine, or at least more that they stand more to gain than they lose ultimately. And so I think it's, it's quite a complicated thing when we talk about laws or conventions and warfare. For me, ultimately, it probably all comes down simply to this complex arrangement of, do I have better chances of winning this war against my enemy if we both agree to this? The Romans themselves knew as well as anybody that the value of making deals in the middle of war with enemies. See, Julius Caesar in his Gallic Wars talks about treating 
his you know his prisoners of war decently and humanely because he knew that he had you know several dozen legionaries being held as captives by the Gauls and he didn't want the you know his men to be butchered in some cell and so he made a big point of and it's the same idea you know you we treat your prisoners okay in exchange we want our prisoners to be treated okay so that after the war we can have our loved ones back there is a a bit of a a misconception there that you encounter often it's a very understandable one and it's the idea that once you've hit war it's the absolute lowest common denominator this this one comes about i think because of world war 2 where in world war 2 it really was all out you throw the kitchen sink it was the annihilation of the enemy at all costs but most of the time in most wars if not for both sides at least for one side it generally isn't and this war in ukraine is an exact example of this from the ukrainian point of view it's enemy of the of the gates in real life it's all the war movies come to life russian soldiers in helicopters landing in hostile airport mariupol besieged blown up with cluster bombs Kherson taken by enemy soldiers, Hotel Europe in Kharkiv blown up and all this. But Russia meanwhile hasn't mobilized yet. And we hear many many stories of how Russia is refusing to try and go for at least even a partial mobilization. A recent story that came out was the Wagner group being allowed to go into the Russian prison system to recruit you know all the prisoners and tell them hey if you go fight in ukraine uh, your sentence might be commuted or even pardoned as part of your service that is unusual uh, to say the least but because you know if you're going by this idea of oh russia wants to win at all costs matter of national survival that it must you know destroy and stamp out the ukrainians yet they've not gone for conscription they've not nationalized heavy industry they haven't you know put in quite the information warfare you would expect them to there's an element where they're holding back they're not throwing everything at their enemy i think you're absolutely right and it's speculating because what else do we have left really it's um kremlinology is is a difficult subject and a lot of it is guesswork but if i had to throw in my guesswork at this it would be one potential reason for that might be that russia has a lot of manpower so they don't they're not in an immediate need at the moment but they they've got it as a plan b another one might be that russia is more concerned about keeping their domestic politics in control as a result of how badly this war has gone for them that they prioritize keeping people at home and not dissidents not destroying putin's political hold over the country strangle over the country that right now that's more important than just drafting them off to war which would potentially only make uh, things worse more dissidents because more people are losing loved ones and more people are demanding well what are we doing there and you don't want that so they're trying to do this you know careful maneuvering um trying to keep the political support at home that might be a reason and another one might be that um that Russia realizes that this is 
this is not fundamentally Russia versus Ukraine. They're now, they're lying in the bed with a lion now. They're in more or less a proxy war, and although this is unlike any other proxy war, this is dangerously close to a, a real war because there's no pretense, there's no lying, there's no plausible deniability that we saw in other proxy wars. This is directly the US, the UK, France, Germany, and other countries confirming in dollar amounts, the amounts of uh, weapons that they're sending over to Ukraine, and also the training that they're offering in the UK, France, and other such countries uh, to Ukrainian battalions. And so Russia realizes now we are pretty much in, in a sort of direct confrontation with the entirety of NATO and the West. So even if you fully mobilized, um, this is just simply, you know, we've bitten way too much here that we can possibly hope to chew. There's a lot more evidence for the second reason you've given than there was for the first. Uh, at one point in the war, I don't believe it's quite true anymore, but at one point there were actually more Ukrainian men on, at arms on the front lines than there were Russian soldiers. I think even right now there are still more Ukrainian men under arms than there are Russian soldiers in the country. But of course, that has then the caveat of that counts. Border guards, uh, the territorial battalions who are the volunteer militias, Yuri and his mates guarding their local town type thing. But that bottom line still holds true. That, you know, the idea that Russia, you know, has no problems with manpower have been frankly proven to be untrue. Russia has suffered quite dearly when it comes to manpower. There was a, a story back in May where they decided to send in units of drill sergeants. And, you know, the joke, of course, that ended up being made was that it was all the full metal jacket sort of characters who are going to just annihilate anything that they encounter. But the jokes aside, these men are very hard to replace because these are the people who know how to train more men to be soldiers. And yet they're being deployed to the front line and getting killed. If the argument had been that you know, manpower was you know, some infinite supply and Russia wasn't sweating about it, they wouldn't be resorting to throwing in anyone with adjacent knowledge of, oh, you might know how to use a gun. We'll throw you in at the front lines and see how you fare. I mean, cops were also used at one point. It was the, the local police to, to groupings from some border areas. We're in the Kiev offensive. You know? As for the domestic, there's a lot of credit to that. Uh, I think in particular, there's a lot to say that Russia is worried about you know, its internal stability. It was perceived to have done badly during COVID and lost many, many people during the pandemic. Its economics are the stuff of despair and nightmares for your average planner. And the, the demographics of the nation look bleak. It's one of its rapidly a graying nation and becoming one of the oldest in the world in terms of its population. I would also worry a lot about internal stability. To be devil's advocate to my own theory, <laughs> welcome to Cynical Talk. It's, uh, you know, 
Yes, I think there's a lot of credibility to the internal dissident or let's say, you know, internal politics reason as to why they're not fully mobilizing. But I also think if there was a time that Putin would be toppled and panic and dissidents and um, protests and demonstrations would break out, I think that window is is increasingly disappearing because it, it would be during that first stage of the war that the sanctions were applied that, and it would all sort of come under, and it hasn't happened. And and in my opinion, and in Yosef's as well, we're now entering into that medium-term effects of the sanctions. So that this is part of the paper that he authored about, uh, you know, analyzing the impact, the potential outcomes of the sanctions. And so there's three layers. There's the short term in which one of them was Putin would topple under political pressure and economic pressure. But if that hasn't happened, then we're entering into the medium uh, territory in which the longer drawn out effects that could play out over a manner of years, like a complex machinery that Russia doesn't produce that needs to be imported, would suddenly not be able to be replaced once broken. And there you are entering supply chain problems for sophisticated mining gear and such. And that does have a pretty strong ripple on effects, even if it sounds like quite a quite a dry, boring thing, you know, advanced uh, mining machinery, but it, it matters. And so there's the medium term and the long term. And, and I do think, unfortunately, we have now passed that point in which Putin being toppled is is a realistic or a probable outcome of the sanctions regime. I think, in my opinion, it's more likely that he clings on to power and that political dissidents become less and less likely and that this just becomes a new normal, the frozen conflict in Ukraine spanning perhaps years and hatred between these groups. And, and so I think that really, and I agree with you on your points about manpower, it, it is a problem. And so perhaps it's not that either leaving perhaps the, the third uh, element that I said, you know, which which I think could potentially be true, that Russia's made a strategic error here and they've drawn the ire and condemnation and resolve of the entire West. Uh, that's, you know, most of the richest countries in the world and the most lethal countries in the world and the entire manpower reserves of, uh, you know, United States, Canada, France, everything, you name it. That's a problem. And it's way too much. Uh, they can't possibly hope to battle that. Now Finland is joining NATO. So that adds, you know, a border that's, I don't know how many hundreds of kilometers long, which has to be manned and bordered because they are unfriendly states, NATO state. And so Russia has now got this problem. The war was not finished quickly. It's they haven't made the progress that they wanted to make. I think, and I might be wrong here, I think that the grain deal that they've just signed on with, with Ukraine in Turkey with Erdogan as uh, the world's most unlikely uh, hero negotiator that Turkey's now somehow positioned itself to be, um, another topic, but um, that Russia wants a way out of this. And that the deal that they've made with Ukraine is a sort of way to save face whilst at the same time signaling to those in the know and the diplomatic game that, hey, you know, we can do a deal here. We can play along. We can make sacrifices. We can make commitments. We're not completely uh, bonkers. Um, you know, you, you can trust us to a degree. And... Perhaps that's a way, a very clandestine, very Russian way of telling the rest of the world, we we don't want war with the entire world. 
That's not where we want to be. Because say what you want about Putin, you know, he's got dementia, he's got this, he's madman, he's Stalin, he's whatever. I don't think that any of that was necessarily true. It doesn't hold up to his record. Um, that yes, he can be aggressive. Yes, he can take over a small country like Georgia or do wars when it suits him. But he's no dummy. He's not, he's not a fool. And perhaps him or his top brass of the army, of the military, has realized there's no winnable scenario here. But neither can we just back down into a corner and say we've lost because of this whole national sovereignty thing that, that we started the episode with. So I don't know, crazy wild theory. What, what do you think, George? The problem with this argument, line of argumentation that Russia's just given up, no, in a sense, decided that they've made a mistake and that they, you know, and that's all, and that's it. Let's try and de-escalate. Is the fact that on the field and in Ukraine, they've been doubling down a lot. Uh, the regional authorities that they appointed in the Kherson region, for example, uh, have are organising a referendum, which we all know how valid and legitimate it's going to be but they're still going ahead with a referendum to formally join Russia. The, the, force, the, the uh, Russian army has also been boasting a lot about the effort and the resources they've been putting into the war. Uh, a story that's been gaining more and more prominence has been the artillery war. And uh, a few weeks ago, the Russian army boasted about the fact that it was firing 60,000 artillery shells per day in Ukraine, which uh, I'm seeing your reaction for the, uh, the listener's benefit. Uh, Thomas is shaking his head, uh, a combination of just shock and disdain. Uh, this was a reaction that was also shared by basically military math geeks, for want of a better way of putting it, uh, because that's a sheer number of shots that actually causes a lot of attrition in your artillery pieces, because an artillery gun can't fire infinitely before it needs to be maintained and have parts swapped out. But at the same time, if the Russians were really in this, had this in their minds of that they're being backed into this corner, that they that they've made a mistake and now that they and now they can't find a way through, the way out seems to be to go through. Why else would they be going through all this effort to? throw in as so many of their advanced equipment and sheer numbers of artillery shells, and then also tell their proxies and their allies in the region to go ahead with the maximalist goals. Part of the answer there, George, and, and Yosef was mentioning this, it has to do with the, the Russian, I mean, on the one hand, there's the Russian national sovereignty and the, and the Russian character, which was, as I described earlier, based or formed from this concept of we must survive the hordes. So a defeat in a war or anything outside of a victory, especially over a neighbor, would be tantamount to an utter shock and perhaps emotional trauma for the Russian psyche. Now, that, that's a lot of, you know, far-flying stuff. Would it, would it hold up in a 21st century modern setting with families that just want to send their kids off to school and have a decent life? Now, that's a good question. I don't know. But I do think that it's at least part of the answer. 
the Russian mindset that cannot accept um, a potentially hostile neighbor. And it goes all the way back to, you know, Ivan the Terrible and the and the roaming Cossacks that, that destroyed and pillaged towns and such. Um, it's a very real kind of feeling. It's not the only one, but it's one of them. And then this, so that would perhaps explain why anything not being a total victory over Ukraine or showing the Russian strength over Ukraine could be a politically a liability for Putin post-war, in which I I would have imagined he intends to remain in power. Um, so, and then the second layer, I, which is the one Yersa spoke a lot about during uh, the upcoming episode, is about what he calls the post-Soviet space. So the post-Soviet space is, of course, the, the territory that used to be part of the, the USSR, which is now, of course, comprised of independent nations, or what should be independent nations, Kazakhstan, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing is that if you look at the Russian grand strategy or the Russian foreign policy post-collapse of the USSR, it has been in large part, and especially under Putin's tenure, about maintaining the control or the apparatus of the USSR, despite these countries now being independent. And so he lists a lot of examples about Russian uh, political direct meddling over the internal affairs of especially Kazakhstan, but also places like Georgia and uh, places like Belarus with uh, Lubashenko. And this has to do with uh, a Russian let's say desire or imperative or, or direct mandate to feel as if they reign over all of these territories and the collapse of the USSR may have happened in name, but in reality, Moscow controls that entire region. And so perhaps this idea of if we, if we don't have total victory, or at the very least, if we don't scare the crap out of all of this post-Soviet space, that this might happen to you if you fall out of line, then that's kind of breaks the narrative that Russia has been trying to build over the, these last 20, if not 30 years. So that's just my sort of thinking out loud as to, as to why they might, on the one hand, privately and in backroom negotiations with in Turkey might be saying you know in a manner of way look you can deal with us we have to we can find a solution that works for everyone but we have to maintain this control we have to maintain we have to save face we have to appear powerful and mind you it's not very different to how the Cuban missile crisis was ultimately sorted out which I believe was also Turkey was also sort of a, a key actor or negotiator or player in this in which Russia wanted to save face as if it had won the conflict or maintained its you know, uh, relationship with Cuba. But at the same time, uh, you know, in the backdoor negotiations, it was actually NATO that got more out of that deal. Um, and so, you know, just throwing, throwing that historical analogy there, saying, you know, perhaps this is something similar in the sense that Russia's bitten off more than they could chew. They want a way out of this. The Odessa grain deal might be an indication of that, but they can't possibly publicly let the world and especially the post-Soviet space know that, okay, you know, if you ally up with NATO, uh, then we've reached our limits and you win. Of course, the, the spanner and the works of that is, of course, the very thing that we've been discussing with regards to that grain deal 
which is the fact that it was then immediately broken and not held in good faith. With less than 24 hours after they'd made this deal, the Odessa was shelled and I think it was a rocket attack destroyed a lot of infrastructure and killed a lot of people. If Russia was really, you know, in this mindset of, hey, you can still deal with us and, oh, look, you know, be afraid of us, whatever. I don't really see how that helps. It, the only impression I, I get with that one is, of course, that, there, is that they act in bad faith is the only conclusion that that one uh, provides. Yeah, you know, I, I don't have the answer for it. I think it's, it could very well be that um, they acted in bad faith and the intention is, is not some kind of safe face deal. Uh, it, it has always been our way or the highway, we will win this. The other possibility is that, it, you know, war is inherently dangerous precisely because of this purpose. You don't always have full control over um, even senior staff. Uh, in the military, because a lot of it is minute by minute, second by second, split second decisions. And it might have been sort of a, you know, a, a lieutenant, perhaps, or somebody lower than that, an officer that um, that made a decision to strike, even if it was against, uh, you know, if there was not proper communication up, up the chain of command that chose to strike the ship and effectively invalidate the deal. Um, I don't know. And, but it could be. And I, and I think the, the, the problem is that the longer a war drags on, the more dangerous it becomes in this sense, that it becomes more ideological, it becomes more a hatred between groups, uh, it has a potential to descend into genocide, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, it has already. Um, and it has the potential of even if the politicians at the very top want this to, to seize, it's become so entrenched, families have lost loved ones, territory has been claimed, um, that it will simply drag on. And this is the problem with a frozen conflict. It, it, it can become anything but frozen to the people living there who would be witnessing casualties on a daily basis just out of grievance and grudge and, and blood, blood feuds. This is why in, you know, in academic circles, the theory goes that if a war lasts longer than one year, that's about the average ballpark you want. It's about one year. If it lasts longer than that, then in practice, a lot of the violence and enmity and uh, destruction of that war will drag on even long after the war is officially over. Because of precisely that, because people will have lost loved ones, people will have lost homes and hold that grudge and want to enact in revenge, no matter what deal gets signed. I think, you know, to the Middle East, where there's been deal after deal attempted in some of these conflicts, Syria, Libya, and they fall apart quickly because the war's just been dragging on too long. And as soon as any kind of deal is reached, even if it's just a faction of one of the sides just goes, no, but... We've lost too much. We've got a sunk cost fallacy here and restart and rekindle the hostilities. Not a, not a happy prospect to think about, that's for sure. No. And I think, you know, the, the world, at least the Western world, never wanted this conflict. Um, it is dragged into it out of, you know, principally, I suppose, humanitarian grounds. But it would not be controversial at all to say that the West also does not want to be doing this. We want peace and we want it to be done quickly. 
because this is costing money, men, it's dangerous, and we've got our own problems, uh, you know, post-COVID and, and a million other things. But the thing is, you know, and, you know, throwing devil's advocate to my devil's advocate, how can we trust Russia if we've done this deal or this deal has been negotiated in, in Turkey and it's already been invalidated? So how can we possibly trust Russia? And, and there I would say, well, you know, even, even if we assume Putin did want this, this deal and, and it is looking for a way to get out and save face and the whole shebang that happened with the Cuban missile crisis, even if we were to assume that, how can we trust that everything else in the Russian military apparatus and political apparatus is not now in some way committed to this at a personal level? Because he's not the only one that calls the shots. Yes, Putin has a lot of power, a lot more than any Western leader, obviously. But it, you know, it's it's a bit childish, in my opinion, to assume that he has some kind of, uh, you know, godlike uh, civilization video game. Click a mouse button and it happens. It's like it doesn't work that way. Even if you have total power, you still depend on physical people to get it done. And sometimes they're not the brightest, or they have different agendas, or they were sick that day. I don't know. And life never goes according to plans, and wars especially never go according to plans. So even if we trust. Putin wants to save face, remain in power somehow, but also win the war while actually losing the war and the whole thing. Even if we were to trust that, how can we possibly negotiate with the Russians in good faith when 20, less than 24 hours uh, once a deal is, is done, uh, already it's been invalidated? Who's to say that's not simply going to keep happening if tomorrow we were to sign a ceasefire between Ukraine and Russia? I... I would object to stating that the West gets involved on humanitarian grounds. There is, there is very clearly something at stake for the West and something to gain for the West if Ukraine wins. Uh, and that word is influence. Ultimately, at the end of the day, one of the main reasons Russia has invaded is because Ukraine wanted to align with the West and it's the Western institutions. It wanted to join the European Union. It wanted to join NATO. And if, you know, for the West, seeing Ukraine lose, seeing Ukraine get so directly punished for wanting to join these institutions, make them inherently less appealing and less valuable. Because then if Ukraine can be destroyed, then what happens to the next country that decides it wants to align with the West and wants to join NATO and wants to uh, become a member of the European Union? It's going to have in the back of its mind. Yeah, but Ukraine was destroyed and the West didn't save them. So how would the West save us? It's, that's a huge deal. You know, this, is, this is the sort of thing that a large number of wars throughout history have been fought over. It's over the fact that we want to be able to influence Ukraine's politics. We want them to vote with us in the United Nations. We want them to be integrated of our trade, swap scientists, work on projects, defend us if NATO is attacked. So I would really strongly object to this idea that it's humanitarian why NATO sends weapons and uh, aids the Ukrainian army. However, Problem with that is it exacerbates the problem with the deals. Ultimately, there's a dichotomy here. 
Russia wants Ukraine to be in its sphere of influence, whether directly annexed or large parts of it annexed or just as a puppet state. By contrast, the West wants it in its influence. And neutrality isn't really an option anymore. That was Ukrainian policy officially in some regards until recently. But official neutrality wasn't enough. Eventually, it had to be one side or the other. And when it comes to that kind of zero sum, there's a winner or a loser game, agreements start getting harder. And the expectation to get people that the other side is going to hold to those agreements also becomes less likely. It also opens up the scope for a lot more violence and depravity of violence as well. Completely agree with you, George, and I think you've put it very well. Um, uh, the stakes are high. It's dangerous. It's more dangerous the longer these, this keeps going. Uh, and, well, here's the million pound question to wrap things up, but do you, do you see the conflict getting more dangerous for the world uh, as we approach the winter, considering the problems with food and gas uh, that are already present? Or do you think that uh, this deal, even despite being invalidated, but is a sign of that things might get easier as the, uh, the European cold approaches? I don't see it getting better, to be honest. I that's not the same as saying I expect it to get worse. It could do that, but I really, really don't see how it can get better at this point. You know, the, at this point, the two sides have more or less stabilized into a front line that doesn't move very much. And so then I could get into the discussion of, oh, the Ukrainians might capture this city or the Russians might capture this town. But what's more important is, as you've said, the bigger picture, the gas prices, the, the, the world food supply. And I don't really see how it's going to be possible to solve or handle these problems in the middle of a war. I mean, Russia is already talking about cutting gas supplies with Europe and has started to do so. I expect that by wintertime, there's going to be a hell of a problem for Europe in terms of its energy and uh, heating. But bear in mind, that's also a two-way street because Europe was paying for all that gas and all of those resources. And that's now money that isn't going to be going into the Russian you know, national treasury. Uh, Zelensky liked to point out until recently that the aid package that the European Union had signed to uh, give to the Ukraine to help out with humanitarian causes and you know, to help with their military uh, was equivalent to one day's worth of the EU's purchases of natural gas from the Russian uh, you know, infrastructure. That gets cut. Well, Russia runs out of money. And Europe runs out of energy. Do I need to elaborate why that's a, a bad situation for everyone involved? And then there's the food supply situation, as mentioned. Uh, so Egypt, for example, uh, earlier this year, started to dip into strategic reserves of grain because 
it was very heavily reliant on Ukrainian grain imports to feed its people. Egypt is a country of 100 million people and a choke point of the world economy. That is not news you want to hear from such a country, to be very blunt. And as the war drags on, as the front line stabilizes, crystallizes into a line of horror scarring the world, I don't see how the supply issues will get any better, only worse, which is a depressing note to end on, isn't it? But then it's a depressing subject. I almost regret asking in a way, uh, although, of course, cynical talk is the more lighthearted take. So, uh, <laughs> but, you know, but this is. Oh, yeah. Wait till you see Joseph's talk. <laughs> exactly. <Real theater. laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, it's, it's exactly as you said, you know, this it's it's an abysmal state of affairs. It's a dreadful situation. It's a horrible, horrible war. Uh, but it is what it is. You know, part of our job is to raise awareness and to to arrive at the truth, to try and work out these difficult subjects. There is no lighthearted take on the Ukraine-Russian war because it's simply terrible any way that you look at it. I agree with you as well, uh, George. If you were to ask me the same question, you know, do I do I see things getting any easier or any better? No, uh, I don't. I think um, it, it's stacked against Ukraine and Russia and Europe at this point. There's there's really no winner here. And in every one of the world's horrible wars, it's been the same thing. There's no real winner, uh, just losers, counted in bodies. So it's a sad one. It's a sad episode today, but um, it has to end at some point and on some note. And so we shall leave it on that sour note. Uh, unless you've got anything else to add, George, this is me, Thomas Brancasso, signing off. And this is me, George Shaft, also signing off. And that wraps up this week's Cynical Talk episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this with your family and friends. If you haven't, let us know why on our website at www.micynic.com or over at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube and more. You can find us over at Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is your co-host Thomas Boncaso, and I hope you'll be joining us next week for our next episode of Cynical Talk. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay cynical.